0: Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, October 20th, 2022, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Melissa Topscher.
1: And I'm Adam Clark. And here are today's top stories. Russia announces Kherson evacuations.
0: Iran will reportedly ship missiles and drones to Russia.
1: The Ethiopian army captures three towns in Tigray.
0: The U.S. will release 15 million barrels of oil from its reserves.
1: The U.S. rolls out nearly $3 billion for electrical vehicle batteries.
0: Rubio and Demings clash in Florida's Senate debate.
1: Biden vows a push to restore abortion rights.
0: A jury acquits the Trump dossier source Danchenko.
1: North Korea fires artillery shells in grave warning to Seoul.
0: And Sweden drops its feminist foreign policy.
1: Our first story is an update on the situation in Ukraine. It is day 238. New Russian commander in Ukraine announces her Kherson evacuations amid tense situation in the region. And here are the facts, as agreed upon by Guardian, TASS, Pravda, and MSN. In his first televised comment since being appointed the new commander of Russia's forces in Ukraine, General Sergei Sorovikin on Tuesday stated that his troops would assist in evacuating residents of the Kherson region. The announcement comes amid growing suspicion that Ukrainian forces are poised to launch a counterattack in an attempt to retake the territory. Sorovikin described the current military situation as tense, stating, The enemy continually attempts to attack the positions of Russian troops. He added, further actions and plans regarding the city of Kherson will depend on the developing military tactical situation, which is not easy. We will act consciously, in a timely manner, without ruling out difficult decisions. On Wednesday, Moscow-appointed acting governor of the Kherson region, Vladimir Soldo, confirmed the plans and said authorities are aiming to resettle 50 to 60,000 residents from the area. Meanwhile, Vladimir Rogov, a Russian-appointed official in the Zaporizhia region, alleged that Ukrainian forces have attempted a river crossing with 30 boats to Enerhodar with the aim of retaking the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. Rogov said the assault force was repelled, but his claims of an attack could not be independently confirmed. Zaporizhia faced fresh strikes on Wednesday as Russia attacks on Ukraine's energy infrastructure continued. Nipo-Petrovsk was also targeted. Eight civilians were reportedly injured in the region. Elsewhere, in an address to the European Parliament on Wednesday, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen described Russia's attacks on energy infrastructure as war crimes. She said, targeted attacks on civilian infrastructure with the clear aim to cut off men, women, children of water, electricity, and heating with the winter coming These are acts of pure terror.
0: Thank you for those facts, Adam. And on this show, we separate the facts from the narratives. We've got several spins emerging on this story, and the first comes from Ukraine form, and it's the anti-Russian narrative. Amid the prospect of further humiliation and defeat at the hands of the Ukrainian military, Russia is now planning to forcibly deport the residents of Kherson. This is an illegal and desperate attempt to cement Moscow's shaky territorial gains by repopulating the region with soldiers and traitors.
1: And an anti-Russia narrative is typically backed up by a pro-Russia narrative, and this one's provided by TASS. These are voluntary evacuations intended to protect the residents of Kherson from Ukrainian attacks. Kyiv's missile strikes on the Kokovka hydropower plant have already put the region at serious risk of flooding. Russian forces are now aiding humanitarian interests by offering evacuation free of charge.
0: And we have a nerd narrative which says there's a 50% chance that Ukraine will regain control of Kherson by December 30th, 2022. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Iran will ship missiles and more drones to Russia. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, The Guardian, The Washington Post, and the South China Morning Post. According to several unnamed senior Iranian officials and diplomats, Iran has allegedly promised to provide Russia with surface-to-surface missiles, along with sending more drones, including explosive kamikaze-type drones. Russian officials reportedly met with their Iranian counterparts on October 6 and asked for more drones and Iranian ballistic missiles of the more advanced Fatah and Zolfagar weapons class. An intelligence assessment shared with Ukrainian and U.S. officials asserts that Iran's armaments industry is readying to ship short-range ballistic missiles capable of striking targets at distances ranging from 300 to 700 kilometers. Sources suggest this is a clear sign of Iran's growing role as a military supplier to Moscow. Ukraine has reported a string of Russian attacks using Iranian-made drones. On Tuesday, Iran's foreign ministry dismissed the claim, and the Kremlin also denied its forces have used Iranian drones in Ukraine. On Monday, multiple EU states called for sanctions on Iran and allegedly supplying drones to Russia. The bloc has also agreed to sanction Tehran over its crackdown on internal dissent. According to Ukrainian intelligence, Iran has delivered 1,750 drones, each costing just $22.4 thousand dollars or 20,000 pounds to build. Last week, President Zelensky said Russia is trying to acquire 2,400 more drones from Iran.
1: Melissa, thank you for the facts on that story. BBC News has a pro establishment narrative they're spinning out of it. The Iranians' UAVs already transferred to Russia and used in Ukraine, as well as those reportedly pledged, are weapons that breach U.N. Security Council Resolution 2231, which prohibits Iran from transferring certain military technologies. Iran is intentionally violating the rules-based order and should remain embargoed.
0: And there's an establishment critical narrative from the Moscow Times claims that Iran is providing Russia with drones to use in Ukraine are baseless allegations fueled by the political agendas of western media. Tehran has intentionally refrained from providing weaponry to either side of the Ukrainian conflict and the west should stop meddling in its neutral stance. I do find that interesting every time we we read these facts agreed upon by multiple sources from all different kinds of sides and then for one narrative to say, "Oh no, it's not true." Well, it kind of makes you think.
1: Well, there's always got to be one person saying it's not true, right? Yes. Even if everybody else disagrees.
0: Yep, and that's why it's a narrative.
1: The Ethiopian army has captured three towns in Tigray. Here are the facts provided by Al Jazeera, France 24, Reuters, Washington Post, Africa, and New York Times. The Ethiopian government declared on Tuesday that its military has taken control of the towns of Shire, Alamata, and Korem from rebel forces in the war-torn Tigray region. The gains were allegedly achieved without the need for fighting in urban areas. Tigray officials had previously conceded the loss of Shire, one of the region's biggest towns and the home of thousands already displaced from other areas by the conflict. The UN has expressed concern about airstrikes carried out by the federal government in the region. These captures are the most significant battlefield shifts in the conflict since Tigrayan forces were forced back within Tigray's borders. They lost significant ground that had been gained when the forces advanced into Amhara as far as Debrecina, a town 190 kilometers away from the national capital, Addis Ababa. The Ethiopian war has intensified since the collapse of a five-month truce in August which led the U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres to state that the situation is spiraling out of control and that hostilities must end now. The African Union, the U.S. and the EU have all stated their concern over a recent escalation in fighting as peace talks planned to take place in South Africa, which were announced last week, were eventually postponed. In September, U.N. investigators released a report accusing both the federal government and Tigrayan rebels of committing war crimes, including massacres and sexual assaults, during the conflict that first erupted in November of 2020.
0: Those were the facts, and we've got several narratives emerging from this story. We'll start with an establishment-critical narrative from Ethiopia Insight. The international community has enabled the federal government to wage this genocidal war, commit atrocities, and eliminate the people of Tigray in a heinous attempt to control the region and ultimately redraw the Horn of Africa. Foreign actors have failed to solve this crisis. The only way to put an end to this conflict is to allow Tigrayans to decide whether they want to remain in Ethiopia or become an independent nation.
1: And the Ethiopian news agency is providing us with a pro establishment narrative. The federal government and many other actors have attempted to send humanitarian aid and essential goods to help the people of Tigray during this conflict, but the so called Tigrayan rebel forces have looted and confiscated deliveries for their own benefit. They're terrorists who have been prolonging the war in order to avoid facing accountability for the atrocities they've committed for 27 years.
0: And there's a nerd narrative on this story from the Metaculous Prediction community that says there's a 60% chance that Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed will experience a significant leadership disruption before 2025. The U.S. will release 15 million barrels of oil from the reserves. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CBS, France 24, The Guardian, Al Jazeera, Reuters, and MSN. On Wednesday, U.S. President Biden announced the release of 15 million barrels of oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserves, or SPR, with additional drawdowns possible this winter. He also disclosed plans to replenish reserves once crude oil prices are down to $70 a barrel. The measure, which reportedly completes the 180 million barrel release authorized by Biden earlier this year, is part of the largest ever dip into the emergency oil reserves as Biden looks for ways to calm energy markets and shield the U.S. economy from shocks caused by skyrocketing oil prices. Washington is also said to have spoken to oil companies about selling an additional 26 million barrels from a congressionally mandated sale in the 2023 fiscal year, which began on October 1st. The release of the barrels due to be delivered in December brings the SPR, which currently contains about 400 million barrels of oil, to its lowest level since 1984. The U.S. government's decision to release 180 million barrels from the SPR aims to combat a potential supply crisis triggered by sanctions imposed on Russia following the outbreak of the Ukraine war. The latest move also comes after OPEC Plus slashed its production quota by two million barrels a day earlier this month, leading to speculation that the White House could respond with more releases from the SPR to ease prices.
1: Thank you, Melissa, for the facts on that story. Whenever we talk about oil and gas prices, you can guarantee there's going to be a political discussion about it. And the Republicans have their say with their spin brought to us by the New York Post. This administration has continued to fumble the current oil crisis, When oil prices go down, Biden takes credit for it. When oil prices go up, Biden blames external factors. As Americans suffer from high prices at the pump, Biden has systematically handicapped the U.S.'s oil production and refinement, mishandled geopolitical crises, and antagonized America's oil-producing allies, such as Saudi Arabia. And
0: CNN gives us a democratic narrative. The Biden administration has been doing everything it can to stabilize oil markets, and this decision is no different. Contrary to popular rhetoric, Biden isn't to blame for what's a global issue caused by a myriad of factors that are largely out of his control. Despite this, Biden has shown his support for combating rising pump prices and will continue to do so as exhibited by his latest announcement.
1: And the nerds of Bataculus have a prediction for us on this story. There's a 50% chance that the price of oil will be at least $92.4 per barrel by December 2022. Merry Christmas. You get a barrel of oil, and you get a barrel of oil, and you get a barrel of oil. We're
0: all going to be mulling spiced oil,
1: sipping on it. The candles are going to smell so good.
0: I got to say, I am a fan of just getting a little whiff from the gas pump. (laughs) That's
1: pretty nice. You know, when you start putting the nozzle up to your nose,
0: then it's a problem. You've got a problem. Yeah.
1: And in another local story, the U.S. is rolling out nearly $3 billion for EV battery production. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Washington Examiner, Reuters, NewsBud, the White House, CNBC, and CBS. On Wednesday... The Biden administration announced it's awarding $2.8 billion in Department of Energy or DOE grants to the 20 manufacturing companies in 12 U.S. states to boost domestic electric vehicle or EV battery production. Funds will also be used in the White House's American Battery Material Initiative to develop enough battery-grade lithium, graphite, and nickel in the first large-scale commercial lithium processing facility. The grant money, which will be matched by private sector investments, will reportedly lead to 8,000 new jobs, 5,000 of which are expected to be permanent. According to a White House fact sheet, the funding is also expected to develop enough lithium, graphite, and nickel to annually produce 2 million, 1.2 million, and 400,000 EVs, respectively. Virtually all minerals necessary for EV battery production are currently made abroad. The Biden administration's goal is to develop an electrode binder facility that will supply 45 percent of the anticipated domestic demand for binders for EV batteries in 2030, with a target of 50 percent of new cars sold being EVs by that same year. The news comes on the same day BMW announced it would invest $1 billion in an EV factory in Spartanburg, South Carolina, as well as an additional $700 million for an electric battery plant nearby.
0: Okay, thank you for the facts, Adam. We will start the spins with a Democratic narrative from Verge. Biden promised to enact the greatest climate change legislation in U.S. history, and he's certainly living up to that promise. Not only is the president guiding America towards renewable future, but he's also creating jobs for Americans that used to be shipped to other countries.
1: And you can count on there being a Republican narrative, and it's provided by Breitbart. Don't be fooled. This announcement is a political stunt solely meant to buy Democratic votes before the midterms. While Biden flashes his EV battery grants before your eyes, he wants you to ignore that he's currently releasing millions of barrels of oil in a failed attempt to fight inflation. He doesn't care about the environment or your pocketbook. Only power. 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 Unlimited (laughs)
0: In U.S. midterms news, Rubio and Demings clash in the Florida Senate debate. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Washington Post, Newsweek, The New York Times, and Fox News. In Florida's Senate debate on Tuesday, Senator Marco Rubio, Republican, and Congresswoman Val Demings, Democrat, carved out their positions on several hot-button topics, including gun restrictions and abortion. On guns, Demings accused Rubio of doing, quote, nothing to help address gun violence and breaking promises he made to the families of victims of a 2018 mass shooting that left 17 people dead in Parkland, Florida. Rubio initially expressed support for laws that would tighten age restrictions and expand background checks for gun policies, but later changed his opinion, a move he defended in the debate, saying recent mass shootings reveal that gun control laws aren't the answer. On abortion, the candidates found themselves at opposite ends of the spectrum. While Rubio didn't say whether he would vote for a federal ban, he did declare himself to be, quote, 100% pro-life. Demings, however, voiced her support for a woman's right to choose up until the time of viability. Rubio, a one-time presidential candidate, is seeking a third term in the Senate and has focused his campaign on crime and the economy. Meanwhile, Demings, elected to Congress in 2016 and a former police chief, has centered on abortion and climate change. According to recent polls, Rubio is the favorite in this race, heading Demings 48% to 41%. The midterm election will be held on November eighth.
1: Thank you, Melissa. Our Democratic narrative is provided by Washington Post. Despite being at a disadvantage by running in ever redder Florida, Demings is within striking distance in this race. Rubio, a career politician stuck on re-election autopilot, has nothing to offer other than flimsy policies and empty promises he can't or won't act on. With her background and stable ideas. Deming's may be the change that Florida needs. And there's a Republican narrative
0: provided by Town Hall. There's nothing stable about Deming's ideas, as highlighted by her extreme position on abortion, which would allow for an exception late into a mother's term, a view supported by just a minority of Americans. The Democrat proved she lacks substance and resorted to personal attacks in an attempt to gain favor, a cheap tactic that will unmistakably backfire reading this story makes me uh makes me realize just how much each of these candidates are just riding the coattails of their party and and following party lines basically we're hearing the token democratic platforms and the token republicans right now yeah
1: i think everyone wants to make sure that they stay in their lane and doesn't want to make anybody second guess maybe voting for them especially in a race that's this tight
0: well they are they are playing their roles that's for sure
1: And in more election midterm news, Biden has vowed to push to restore abortion rights. And here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Associated Press, Politico, New York Times, BBC News, and Reuters. Three weeks ahead of the midterms, U.S. President Joe Biden on Tuesday pledged that he would push Congress to codify abortion rights in federal law if Democrats control the legislature next year. Speaking at a Democratic National Committee event in Washington, he promised that if the Democrats expand their majority in the Senate and maintain control of the House in November's elections, the first bill he'll send to the next Congress will be legislation to reinstate the abortion protections of Roe v. Wade. The president also claimed that Republicans in Congress are doubling down on their extreme positions and that the GOP is seeking to instate a national ban that would criminalize abortion across the U.S. This comes as Democrats struggle to hold on to their slim legislative majorities. According to a recent New York Times-Siena poll, initial backlash over the reversal of Roe v. Wade in June has given way to economic concerns among voters. There is also reported to be a significant swing in favor of Republicans among independent female voters. The latest voting projections also look bleak for the Democrats, who currently hold majorities in both chambers of Congress. Although the incumbent party is projected to narrowly hold the Senate, Republicans look set to regain control of the House of Representatives. Even if Democrats retain their majority in the closely divided upper chamber, passing an abortion bill could still prove difficult, as the party would likely require the support of at least 60 of its 100 senators.
0: Thank you, Adam, and we'll continue with our political narratives on this story. Town Hall brings us a Republican narrative. Things don't look good for the Democrats. While an increasing number of U.S. citizens are concerned about rising inflation and the energy crisis, Biden still seems to believe that he could score points with voters by pulling the abortion card. This desperate speech made so close to the midterms is the final proof that Biden and his entire party are completely out of touch with reality and ignorant of the real concerns of working Americans.
1: And The Washington Post has provided us with a Democratic narrative. It's utterly hypocritical for the Republicans to present themselves as the advocates of working families when they are the ones who primarily represent corporate interests. However, as right as Biden is to stand up for reproductive rights, the issue will probably not be decisive for the election. Democrats must not fail to credibly demonstrate that they are the party that stands for democracy and economic justice. Their re-election is crucial to the security and safety of the poorest Americans.
0: And the nerds are speaking on this story as well. From Metaculus, there's a 42% chance that Republicans will win both the House and Senate in the 2022 midterm elections. You know, if you want to see uh, a very interesting context piece about abortion, you can go to improvethenews.org and find a, a video that we've done about abortion that puts a lot of nuance back into the story, sheds a little more light on the controversy.
1: And if any of today's listeners would like to check out that video, I've put a link in the description of today's podcast.
0: A jury acquits the Trump dossier source Danchenko. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, The Guardian, Spectrum Local, Yahoo Finance, and The New York Times. On Tuesday, Igor Danchenko, a Russian researcher accused of lying to the FBI about the source for a so-called Steele dossier that alleged a Trump-Russia collusion, was acquitted on four counts in federal court. Danchenko's case was the third brought by special counsel John Durham concerning the FBI's quote, crossfire hurricane investigation into alleged ties between Trump's 2016 campaign and Russia. One of Durham's previous cases ended in an acquittal, with a second ending with a guilty plea. The dossier, which has been largely discredited, was made up of a series of allegations, including that Russians might have had blackmail material on Trump for his alleged interactions with prostitutes in a Moscow hotel. Danchenko, by his own admission, was responsible for 80% of the raw intelligence and half of the dossier's analysis. U.S. District Judge Anthony Trenga threw out Danchenko's fifth charge last week, and one juror told the Washington Post that the decision on the other four counts was pretty unanimous. The Steele dossier was indirectly funded by Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign and the Democratic National Committee and subcontracted to Christopher Steele, a former British spy. Steele hired Danchenko to collect evidence in Russia.
1: Melissa, thank you for laying out the facts on that story. We've got a couple of spins, starting with the Democratic narrative provided by CNN. What an embarrassment this has turned out for Durham, who personally handled most of the arguments and questioning in this case. He couldn't even stop some of his own witnesses from providing testimony that helped Dachenko's defense. Trump's special counsel is now 0 for 3, proving he's barking up the wrong tree in pursuit of government corruption.
0: And there's a pro-Trump narrative from the New York Post. Danchenko's acquittal isn't the story here. The focus should be on the FBI misconduct this trial uncovered. The FBI offered Steele a million dollars for evidence that verified the dossier's claims a futile move, as neither party could prove any of the salacious allegations. While knowing the dossier wasn't credible, the FBI still used it to obtain warrants and fuel the unjustified persecution of Trump. The FBI must be made to answer for this.
1: And moving away from political news, North Korea fires artillery shells in grave warning to Seoul. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, North Korea News. Korea Joongang Daily, Al Jazeera, Korea Times, and Associated Press. A spokesman for the Korean People's Army, or KPA, for North Korea, confirmed that Pyongyang fired 100 more artillery shells off its west coast on Wednesday. The North claimed this move was in response to Seoul's firing of multiple rocket launchers near the border of both nations and characterized its response as a grave warning. This development comes after the North test-fired about 250 rounds of artillery from its east and west coasts on Tuesday. Pyongyang has claimed to have adopted these powerful military countermeasures to warn against South Korea's drills, urging its enemies to immediately stop provocative acts that have allegedly raised tensions on the peninsula. This marks the second time since last Friday that the North has been accused of breaking a 2018 inter-Korean agreement that established maritime buffer zones between the countries to curb hostilities at the front line. On Monday, the South began its annual two-week Hoguk defense exercises with some US troops taking part to enhance the interoperability amid rising tensions. Pyongyang has test-fired 15 missiles since resuming test activities on September 25th, including an intermediate-range ballistic missile that passed over Japan and was reportedly capable of reaching the U.S. territory of Guam.
0: We've got three narrative spins forming on this Korean story. The Republican narrative comes from Red State. You cannot blame Kim Jong-un for flexing North Korea's military muscles when Biden is recklessly saber-rattling with Taiwan and China. How does Kim know the U.S. will not also team up with South Korea for an invasion of the North? Trump's relationship with and policies toward North Korea maintained stability in the Korean Peninsula.
1: And MSNBC is providing us with a democratic narrative. Kim Jong-un's geopolitical actions have been erratic, and his missile launches are destabilizing the peninsula. Instead of provoking a confrontation, Kim should take the Biden administration up on its offer to meet without preconditions and settle any of his grievances peacefully. Biden is showing strength and prejudice. Biden is showing strength and prudence in the region.
0: And there's a nerd narrative on the story that says there's a 17% chance that North Korea and South Korea will be recognized as a single sovereign state by 2045. And this is according to the Metaculous Prediction Community.
1: You know, I kind of agree with the Democratic narrative then. You know, Kim should take up Biden on his offer to, to meet.
0: They need to have a bro down. Either
1: your cave or mine, Let's drink Kim. drink some beer. Let's have a bro yes. down.
0: We're probably going to establish every week who needs to get together and have some beers together. And in our final story today, Sweden drops a feminist foreign policy. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian, BBC News, Fontura News, and you Sweden's new right-wing government on Tuesday announced it will scrap the country's feminist foreign policy, calling it counterproductive. It was first launched in 2014 by former foreign minister Margot Wallström. The policy was designed to advance gender equality as a basic goal of Sweden's foreign policy. It was seen as a condition for attaining the Nordic nation's objectives of achieving peace, security, and sustainable development. New foreign minister Tobias Bilstrom said, Gender equality is a core value for Sweden and this government, but we will not conduct a feminist foreign policy, adding that labels on things have a tendency to cover up the content. Bilstrom suggested that Sweden should instead focus on its NATO accession process, including advancing the three-party agreement between itself, Turkey, and Finland, regarding security issues of concern to Ankara. In a 2021 report, Sweden said it has contributed to gender equality achievements in Moldova, Somalia, and Colombia, as well as laws in 20 countries related to gender-based violence, female genital mutilation, and child marriage. Several publications on Sweden's gender equality goals were in the process of being taken down from the foreign ministry's website on Tuesday. Bilstrom said there will be no changes to any other foreign policy documents.
1: Thank you, Melissa. Our last round of narrative spins begins with the right narrative on this story, and it's provided by your active. Scrapping the feminist part of Sweden's foreign policy will make very little difference in national security realities. There are pressing issues concerning NATO, including complex dynamics with Turkey and Kurdish groups that must be worked out for a session to be successful. By scrapping this label, Sweden's foreign policy remains prioritized but loses the hypocrisy.
0: And there's a left narrative from Europe's cities. It's not surprising that Sweden's far-right government, led by a party formed out of a neo-Nazi movement, is tearing down the nation's groundbreaking foreign policy achievement on gender equity. All the successes this policy has built are being thrown out the window in the name of reactionary conservatism. Thank you for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, October 20th, 2022.
1: Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ.
0: For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Melissa Topscher, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.